Hello, and welcome to the Dismantling Disparities in Healthcare podcast, a show that examines the structural racism in healthcare and what we can do about it. I'm Aswita Tamagori, the director of the Disparity Solutions Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I'm joined by Dr. Alden Landry, who wears many hats. So I'm going to reel off all the different hats that you wear, Alden. Uh, you're an assistant professor in emergency medicine. You are also an emergency medicine physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, also known as the BIDMC, and you're the co-director of Tour for Diversity. Uh, you are also the assistant dean and faculty assistant director of the Office for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnership, and the associate director and advisor for the Castle Society at Harvard Medical School. You're the director of health education at Harvard Medical School, and Last but not least, you are senior faculty at the Disparity Solutions Center, and uh, you mentor many students from high school to medical school and are encouraging them to have a career in health profession. So thank you for joining us, Alden. Thank you for having me. So I always open these podcasts with just a question about you, because I want our listeners to know a little bit about you. And so where are you from? And then always, how did you end up at Harvard? Uh, sure. So um, I always start off by telling people I'm just a country boy from East Texas. Um, you know, I am originally from Texas, very proud of that. And uh, uh, But my father was in the military, so I grew up all around the world. Um, home has always been Texas, went to high school in Virginia, and then went to college at a small HBCU in Texas called Prairie View A&M University. Uh, got accepted to medical school and went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine and uh, came here for residency at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Emergency Medicine, and I've been in Boston ever since. So um, I do know that you have some Cajun background. Yes. And maybe you can explain to our listeners what that means. Uh, sure. So, um, you know, Cajun Creoles, the culture um, and uh, the community that lives mostly in uh, Louisiana and uh, East Texas, um, very much known for its food, lots of uh, flavor and uh, the holy trinity of cooking, which is celery, bell pepper, and onion. Um, and... Uh, so if you ever have a good gumbo, you know that it's going to start with that. Uh, but uh, on both sides of my family, my uh, both uh, maternal and paternal uh, grandparents have their roots in Louisiana. And my grandfather actually uh, grew up in the rice fields of Louisiana, um, started there uh, working as a, um, he dropped out of school in the third grade to actually start working in the rice fields and uh, eventually moved to Texas. And uh, so did the other half of my family. And um, here I am. Okay, so your roots are in Louisiana. Louisiana and Texas, definitely. Yeah. Um, I did spend some time in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, when I was in graduate school. But you and I both grew up in Texas. Um, we both went to our youth there, and then we also went to college. <clears throat> and so now we live up in Boston. And I think the perception is uh, in the North that the South is very racist. And while I would agree that there are some differences in the way that we experience racism in the South versus the North, I don't necessarily agree that the South is more racist than the North. And it's an interesting perspective that I think you and I both have, but not many people sort of go from the North to the South. So what do you think the difference is in how you've experienced racism as a black male in the South versus up here in Boston or the North? Sure. You know, I, and I've answered that question uh, in a number of different ways to help people explain the difference. 
between racism in the South and the North. And I think uh, in the South, um, I, I hate to say it, but you expect it. But in the North, it's almost as if um, you're blindsided by it when it hits you up front like it does in the South, when you're called the N-word or uh, when you are... Um, when you experience the uh, racism sort of um, in your face. Um, so you're not necessarily expecting that in the North, um, but you definitely feel the undercurrents of, uh, of racism uh, here in the, in the North. Uh, and, you know, the Boston uh, Globe Spotlight series did a great job of uh, really highlighting how racism is sort of ingrained in Boston uh, and in the Northeast. Um, I, I like to give a story uh, about my experience when I, uh, was telling people from the South that I was actually coming to Boston. So uh, when I match for residency, our medical school does a big uh, production and people go up on a stage and they read out where they've been accepted to residency. And uh, I got up there and I read that I was going to be going to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, and everyone clapped. And then I walked off stage and uh, I walked over a group of friends uh, who came over to congratulate me. Uh, and, um, you know, they were all saying, great, that's awesome that where you're going. And then, uh, a woman came up to me and gave me a big hug and said, wow, I can't believe you're going to Boston. It's really racist up there. And, uh, I laughed uh, mostly because I went to medical school in Alabama and, uh, the perception of, uh, Alabama is that it's racist down there. And in fact, the building that the medical school, um, sits in was commissioned by George Wallace, who was, uh, the governor of Georgia, who said, oh, excuse me, of Alabama, who said, uh, that, uh, he didn't want black students to come to this institution. So, you know, you just think about those dynamics of how people in the South view Boston um, with this history of uh, busing and uh, all the issues that Boston had to deal with in the 70s and 80s um, around racism and how that even is still felt today by the by the people of color who live in the city. I grew up in the era of David Duke, mm -hmm. if you remember him. Mm -hmm. um, but you come up here and it's supposed to be sort of the bastion of liberalism, sure. especially in Massachusetts. And yet you still have that feeling of exclusion of racism, but you can't quite put your finger on sure. what it is. It's yeah. not as overt. Very much so. And I, uh, shortly after um, I matched here in Boston for residency, I called up a couple of residents and I was trying to get an idea of where to live, um, you know, what type of neighborhoods are good. Um, and where do residents typically stay when they want to be near the hospital? And I remember having a conversation with one of the residents and he was telling me about neighborhoods and then he paused and he said, oh, wait, you're black, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, well, here's where you don't want to live. Um, and he started to tell me a little bit about the neighborhoods in Boston and how, um, you know, people of color aren't welcomed, uh, in those neighborhoods. Uh, so that was a very real, um, experience for me, uh, coming from, again, coming from the South where, you know, you know, where, um, uh, you, you know, how to, to deal and navigate with those situations. But here I am coming to Boston and I wasn't expecting to have to navigate those situations here in the Northeast. I think that's what makes it <clears throat> sometimes very hard for us to solve this problem up here um, because it's more difficult to point out and give examples and mm -hmm. concrete examples. And other than the feeling of, but I feel it, right? It's not concrete enough for leadership sometimes. Sure. And I, and, and I think that's the uh, the hidden power of structural racism mm -hmm. um, is that it's so ingrained uh, in the culture. It's so ingrained in the rules. It's so um, ingrained in uh, the old guard and the leadership um, that you know it's there and you sense it. Um, and in some cases you see it, but it's really hard to pinpoint where the original source is. And uh, I think that what, that's oftentimes what Boston suffers from. Yeah, 
I agree. Uh, so speaking of Boston, you were the first black resident in 2006, which is really not that long ago, uh, in the ED at um, Beth Israel. And when I think of the emergency room, it's a high stress environment. It's very unpredictable, but it also tends to be a site where we see much of our minority and immigrant patients. So what was your experience as one of the few people, or maybe the only person uh, of color who is a clinician in the ED, and then especially because you probably saw a disproportionate number of patients of color and immigrants in that space? Well, I would start off by saying most of the time um, when I would walk into a patient's room, they didn't expect me to be the doctor. Mm -hmm. They were always expecting someone else to come in. Uh, and when they saw me walk in the room, they were expecting me to be the one to take them to radiology to get their x-ray or to help them to get up to go to the bathroom or to get them a warm blanket. But they never expected me to be the one taking care of them. Uh, and then my colleagues, um, who I was in training with, uh, maybe from other services, um, didn't realize that there was a black doctor in the uh, in the residency. And so they didn't realize that they were talking to me on the phone when they met me in person. Mm. Um, they just assumed that I, that, uh, I was another white person uh, just because there's so few minorities. Um, and then beyond that, even um, as I've gone on uh, in my career in academic medicine, um, and you and I have conversations about this all the time, there's that black tax or minority tax that comes along with being the one and the only um, because they need a representative who is a person of color, who is some underrepresented minority to sit on a seat, whether it's a, a committee um, or to be a part of a panel or uh, to lead some work. Um, and uh, they choose you uh, oftentimes because of the diversity that you bring and not necessarily think about the other attributes or aspects that you bring to the job. Yeah, I would say it's really extremely um, difficult to have to be the one person of color in the room to raise an issue that's around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I sometimes in my head think, can somebody else please raise this besides sure. me? Sure. And, and, you know, oftentimes when you're in these situations, you're the first, you're the only, and you feel lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier. When you're in these situations, um, it would just, it would be such a relief to not have to be the one to point out the elephant in the room, uh, that there's an issue around equity. Um, but the only person that identifies the issue is the person um, who often has to think about this, whether it's because of the minority tax or because they're coming from a diverse background, they're coming from an underrepresented background. And so they eat more easily see the flaws in the system, um, whereas some of our other colleagues are almost aloof to the situation at hand. They have the privilege of not thinking about it. Sure. Every day. Sure. And, uh, you know, it, it would be great to not have to think about this, I'm sure. But, you know, unfortunately, when you do this type of work, um, it permeates um, into even spaces when you're outside of work. So when you're out grocery shopping or cooking dinner or when you're uh, going for a run or exercising or whatever it may be, um, you think about these health equity issues. You think about uh, racism. You think about you know, how this may impact um, the patients that you're caring for, even your own children or your uh, other people in your family. Um, and you can't really turn that switch off. You you take this work home with you. And, uh, um, you know, we're passionate about it and we do it because we want to address these issues and we want to see um, health equity and we want to see the elimination of uh, these barriers that our patients may face, that the people that I mentor, that they may face. Um, 
but we just don't turn this off. Whereas I think some people have the ability uh, to treat this uh, work as if it was a light switch and to turn it on when they come into the, to the office building. And then when they leave for the day, they cut the light off. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, you and I talk a lot about how it's hard. Sometimes I wish that I didn't know the, the things that I know. <clears throat> I probably could enjoy my weekends more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think people don't realize that, that we always have that lens. And so everything is filtered through that lens. You and I have a lot of discussions about increasing the diversity in our providers and staff to get to equity. But we also talk about how pipeline programs aren't the only answer. So what are the challenges of relying on pipeline programs to fill this gap in our workforce? And how does the structural racism contribute to this? You know, you know, I, I wrestle with this question all the time. And, um, you know, the, the real question is, um, what does um, patient-doctor concordance look like? And how does that impact um uh, healthcare and health and, and outcomes in care. And, you know, there's multiple ways to address health equity uh, in the healthcare space. And one way to do so is having more diversity in the providers um, on uh, in healthcare. And if you look at the numbers currently, uh, black uh, doctors account for 4% of the practicing workforce, uh, but we're 13% of the population. And, uh, you know, I'm not one who says that we need to make sure that every black patient has a black doctor and every Latino patient has a Latino doctor and every white patient has a white doctor and every uh, lesbian patient has a lesbian doctor um, and every patient who is from a rural background needs a doctor who's also from that same rural background. I don't think we need parity like that, but I do think that uh, when you increase the diversity of your providers, um, all patients are going to benefit. And the studies bear that out. The studies show that um, patients uh, who are cared for by um, uh, doctors who look like them and have similar backgrounds, they have higher um, adherence to medications and follow-up, um, and they're more likely to get their flu shot and you know colonoscopies. Um, and then you also see that in schools uh, where the physician or the medical student diversity is, is larger and you have um, a, a, a bigger pool of uh, underrepresented minority students in those, uh, in those classes, those students who graduate from those institutions also feel like they're more capable of caring for patients from diverse backgrounds. They feel more comfortable caring for um, uh, patients from diverse backgrounds. And that's because of the conversations that they have across the table with their classmates uh, who bring some cultural context um, to uh, the lived experience of, you know, uh, of someone from a different background than, than, than where they may be coming from. And so I think there's value um, both on the interpersonal level, but then also on the overall professional level of having more, more diversity. That's certainly not going to address the issue. I think there's so many other um, other spaces in, um, in health equity that uh, also need to be touched. But I think um, physician diversity is definitely one that we've, uh, we've missed out on so far. Just to, to close on that thought, um, we've talked a little bit about the cost of getting into medical school. Sure. Can you expand on that? Because I think most of us don't know what it really costs. Uh, you know, cost is definitely a barrier to students because medical school is not cheap. Um, and, you know, you think about the steps that are needed to get into medical school from first off being in college uh, and the cost of um, undergraduate education is going through the roof. 
Um, then you think about the other things that you must do in order to be successful to get into medical school, like summer programs. Uh, and oftentimes, um, students who are coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds use their summer or um, even their winter breaks or they're working all the way through college when uh, medical schools are expecting more and more for students to do things like research and volunteering. Um, and if you're working a full-time job and going to college or you're working during the summer, you can't participate in a summer program. And so you think those students are already set behind because they're not able to do those extracurriculars to add to their uh, application because they're working a job in order to put themselves through school to support their families um, or just to support themselves. Um, then you think about the cost of taking courses like the MCAT. Um, and what people don't realize is uh, the MCAT, which is the admissions test for medical school, most of the time students pay anywhere from uh, $1,500 to $3,000 in prep materials um, before they even take the exam. And then you have to take the exam, which isn't cheap as well. It's a couple hundred dollars to take the exam. Um, and then you have to actually apply to medical school, and there's costs with that. And then there's costs for secondary applications, which range anywhere from $50 to $100. So you're looking at thousands of dollars just to get an application in. And then there's a next level, which is you actually have to interview. So you're traveling to different cities, uh, staying at hotels, um, uh, doing your interview. Um, so if you think about all the course, uh, the cost, the, I think the average student comes out paying anywhere from uh, four to $6,000 just to apply uh, and get accepted to medical school. And that's a huge barrier for a lot of students. And that's assuming that we make it into college. Yeah, that's assuming that the students who uh, are coming from um, disadvantaged backgrounds have the right mentors who are putting them in place to uh, be successful and apply to college, who are encouraging them to go into careers in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, that's assuming that uh, they haven't had people who are serving as their roadblocks, who are telling them, no, you can't, um, you're never going to be successful. People like you don't go on to do this, or they're not shuttling them off into different careers that um, that they think the student may be more suited for without really getting to know uh, what that student, who that student is and what they're capable of. Is there something you would like to say to that teacher who told you that you can do this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I had a teacher, it was uh, my uh, AP Spanish teacher. Uh, don't ask me to speak Spanish uh, because I didn't, uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't retain that knowledge, but I was taking a bunch of AP courses in high school and I did pretty well in all of the courses. Um, and uh, it was towards the end of my senior year. And I was talking to that uh, that Spanish teacher. And we were actually going around the class talking about our, our next steps, our, our career aspirations, and where we're going to college. And I mentioned that I was going to Prairie View. Um, and then I also mentioned that I was going to be uh, majoring in biology with the goal of uh, going to medical school. And uh, afterwards, he pulled me aside. And he, he I think he was trying to give me good advice, or at least he thought he was trying to give me good advice. And he told me that, you know, people like me um, usually don't do well as biology majors. And uh, I may want to reconsider my career and do something that may be more um, uh, more realistic uh, as far as a career goal for me. Um, and when I asked him what that was, uh, he, he really couldn't expound on that. I, I think he wasn't expecting me to challenge him uh, in that conversation. Um, but it, it's unfortunate that as a 17-year-old kid, you know, about to graduate from high school, um, I'm, I'm having uh, someone who I looked up to. I'd taken classes from this person for two years uh, who was telling me that I wasn't going to be successful on the next level. Um, and a lot of students, when they hear those negative, uh, those, that negative uh, feedback from uh, people in the, in the form of teachers or high school counselors or other advisors, um, they take that to heart. And mm -hmm. uh, 
the, you know, that can be that, you know, that, that major, um, stop point for those students when they decide to go in a different route because someone told them they couldn't do it. So let's talk about your baby, not the four you have at home. <laughs> the other one, um, tour for diversity. Sure. Can you, uh, um, talk a little bit about that? I think I'm really interested in, in hearing, um, from your perspective, what are some of the things that you help students with so that they can get into health professions? Sure. Well, let me give you a little bit of background first about the tour. So it was a, uh, concept that a colleague and I uh, came up with when we were in medical school, and we were thinking about the barriers to students getting the information they need in order to successfully apply to, to medical school. Um, and one of the things that we were doing is we were putting on a, a, a conference for a national organization to really talk about what pre-medical students should be doing and could be doing in order to uh, improve their chances of getting into medical school. And so as uh, we are preparing for the conference, we are thinking about, well, what's stopping these students from participating? How can we get more to join in on the conversation? And we recognize that there are a couple barriers, even to students coming to conferences. And we talked about the cost of medical education and or applying to medical school. Uh, but other costs that, that come into play like this are just gaining information and, and, and advice uh, around uh, being successful and getting into medical school. And so um, we came up with a list of barriers and we said, well, what's the easiest way for us to help these students overcome those barriers? And we said, well, instead of doing a program where the students come to a conference, let's bring the conference to them. And so um, time went by and we sort of played with the idea and we're fortunate to get some funding for the project. And um, we do a essentially a one-day um, college tour where we uh, take doctors, dentists, uh, pharmacists, um, podiatrists, other um, health professionals um, and pre-health advisors. And we get on a bus and we go to different colleges. We do a college a day over the course of a week. Um, and it's a one-day pre-health conference. We go and we set up shop on campus. We bring the students from that campus and surrounding communities in. And we talk to students about what it takes to become uh, the doctor or dentist or other health professional that they want to become. And uh, a lot of what we're telling people is not new. We're not, you know, telling some secret code that um, isn't available from other sources. Um, but I think the uniqueness that we bring is it's black and Latino doctors uh, and dentists who are taking their own time, their own vacation to go out and share this information with students. And so it's oftentimes for these students, the first time they see a doctor who looks like them, who has the same background as them, who has the same lived experience as them, who's overcome the same struggles as them, uh, who are now professionals. And, uh, it's a term that we use all, often on the tour is you can't be what you can't see. And these students are actually seeing people who look like them who are doing the work that they want to do. And so uh, the tour has been around for a number of years. Um, we've gone to uh, over 40 campuses uh, talking to students. Uh, many of uh, the students that um, we met in uh, our initial tours are now reaching back out to me now because they're in medical school, dental school, or they're finishing up, which is a really cool experience to, you know, meet people so early in their journey and see them progressing so far along. Uh, but it's really about, uh, for the tour, it's sharing information, sharing stories, and helping those students overcome their own personal obstacles or uh, addressing some of the systemic obstacles that they, they may be facing um, in order to be successful and get into to their next level of education for, for their medical training. 
Yeah, I, um, I'm a. As you were asking me today, what is it? Why do you, does your badge say you're a coach? Sure. And I said, well, I, I coach some residents, uh, and I think sometimes, I think for residents especially, they just want somebody who's in their corner, mm-hmm. who doesn't ask to justify what they've experienced, who can totally say, yeah, I get you, um, and so that helps them go back out in the world, go back into our system, and take care of the patients that they need to take care of. So before we close this podcast, um, I want our listeners to know that Dr. Alden Landry is actually um, a really good barbecuer. And if you're from Texas, you know how important that is. And I think you even hauled up your own equipment up here in Boston. Um, And so... You did, and it has Landry on it, right? That's yeah. correct. I mean, that's like impressive, and um, and so maybe um, my question at the end here was, what advice can you give to our listeners that they can do in their day to day living to create more awareness on what we discussed today? But I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to see how you incorporated what we talked about today into your annual barbecue session. <laughs> <laughs> so, I um, what what. Uh, as Wida is referring to, is I do a uh, Juneteenth barbecue. Um, and for those of you listening who don't know what Juneteenth is, um, uh, it's uh, the day that the slaves in Texas, particularly in Galveston, Texas, found out about the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, that they were free and no longer slaves. And um, it's a big celebration. And, um, you know, uh, what the slaves actually did was they poured gunpowder into uh, trees and lit the trees on fire. And there was fireworks and uh, they slaughtered cows and barbecued and had a big party that lasted for days. Um, I try and do it for one day a year <laughs> on June 19th or at least the weekend to celebrate. No gunpowder. Um, no gunpowder. But uh, as Weed has been present and, and enjoyed some of the barbecue and, uh, you know, always tries to take home a little extra boudin and uh, and brisket uh, for, for the rest of the week. So, uh, but, you know, it's something that I try and bring up as a part of my culture, a part of, um, you know, uh, my um, ancestry in the in 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 my history uh, as a Texan and uh, as uh, as a black person living here in America, um, but I'd like to uh, I guess maybe end on a quote um, from Desmond Tutu and it goes: If you are neutral in situations of injustice, then you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And I, I think that's really important for the conversation that we're having here in that, um, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people sort of check in and check out when it comes to this work around health equity. Um, but for us uh, who are coming from um, minority backgrounds, who are coming from, who are part of vulnerable populations, this is a lived experience and it may not be directly touching us at this time, but it may be impacting our family members or it's certainly impacting our patients. Uh, and so we don't have the ability to, to sort of turn off um, that switch. And uh, I just wish that more people who are in positions of power, um, who are in those C-suites, who are in the decision-making spaces, um, were actually engaged in this process and thinking about how the decisions that they were making um, were not only going to impact the patients who had the best insurance and who um, had all the tools and resources to be healthy, but also thought about the most vulnerable um, that are that are under their care and that they're responsible for. And if we think about it from their perspective and we think about it from the most vulnerable uh, perspective, uh, then everybody's care is going to get better. And it's, it's, it's unfortunately something that we don't do, but it's the perspective and the lens that we should um, take for medicine if we really wanted to um, achieve health equity. 
Well, thank you again, Alden. Um, thank you for coming in. And thank you for having me. Yes, it, it was. It's always good to have these conversations with people who are on the same page. Yeah. It makes it so much easier. I want to thank all of our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast um, and share this podcast with others. For more information about the Disparity Solutions Center, you can visit visit us online at mghdisparitysolutions.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at MGH Disparities. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next one.